Attention, attention all personnel, it's MASHCAST. Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates, episode by episode, the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, General Robert Iron Guts Kelly, and joining us this week in the VIP tent is Colonel Corey Drew. Hi, Corey. Hello, how goes? <laughs> welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, we're here to talk about the season five episode, Dear Sigmund, straight up masterpiece uh, is this episode. It originally aired yeah. on November 9th, 1976. It was written and directed by Alan Alden. Now, of course, Corey, you've been on the show mm-hmm. multiple times uh, before now, so we don't need yeah. to get into history of MASH. We could just jump right into the plot. Sidney Friedman has come to visit again, and he seems to be staying longer than usual. So long that he has time to write a letter to Sigmund Freud, where he tells the world-famous psychiatrist about what he calls a kind of spa, the 477. He describes each member of the unit and shares stories about them, like the time Hawkeye came to do rounds and post-op dressed in a pith helmet and swim fins, delivering one-liners like Groucho Marx. Klinger, pretending to be hit in the head with a chopper blade, all of a sudden speaks only Arabic. Someone else is perpetrating a rash of practical jokes, and no one is safe, not even Colonel Potter. Meanwhile, a bomber pilot named Hathaway, played by Charles Frank, arrives in camp, oblivious to the destruction he's causing and the innocent people he's hurting, but keeping himself above the war, both physically and emotionally. Sidney comes back to the swamp one day to find Hawkeye and BJ reading his letter to Freud, which gets Sidney to open up what's been troubling him. He's been having a very difficult time with his patients lately. He missed the signals one sweet, innocent, troubled kid gave him, and the boy ended up killing himself. Depressed and unfocused, he's come to the 477 to feel better. There's something special about this place. You give life here. Later that night, he has a drink with Margaret. A nice chat turns into a debacle when the self-described unflappable Margaret Houlihan gets insulted when she sees an athletic supporter laying nearby. She gets so worked up, Sidney has to put his hat over it so she doesn't even have to look at it. During surgery, the bomber pilot, who was helping out in triage thanks to Hawkeye, sees that one of the wounded is a little girl about six years old. He is horrified to learn that she was hit by an overhead bomb and rushes out of the OR. Hawkeye follows him out and the pilot breaks down, realizing what he's been doing and that this isn't, as he calls it, a clean war. Sidney, in his letter, talks about Radar, who seems as childlike as the Korean children he plays with, and it keeps the chaos of the 477 running smoothly. We also see that he gently handles the task of writing a letter for Colonel Potter to the parents of his friend, an ambulance driver who crashed his vehicle due to careless and rushed driving and was killed. The one person at the unit Sidney can't quite figure out is B.J. Honeycutt. He seems so calm, so serene, yet he figures there must be something bubbling underneath his calm demeanor. Sidney's suspicions are confirmed when he sees that B.J. is, in fact, the mad practical joker. He helps B.J. fill Frank's air raid bunker with water, then calls Frank out by yelling air raid at the top of his lungs. Frank rushes out in a panic, falling into the water and splashing around helplessly. Sidney finally starts to feel better and heads back to work but not before noticing all the gas cans that Hawkeye and BJ have tied to his Jeep's bumper. He pauses for a moment, sees what's making all that racket, and then drives on. So, uh, like I said at the top of the show, Corey, I don't think anyone would, would give me an argument about this. This is just a masterpiece. This is just one of their best episodes they ever did. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the best episodes of television. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a complete short story uh, on Tell, you know, on on TV, it's 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 if you were reading, you know, like one of the great short stories, you know, in the canon, but it's a mash episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, I sort of consider myself the sort of Sydney Friedman of, of MASHcast or <laughs> the Fire and Water Network. You know what I mean? I show up like once a season. Um, we have kind of the same demeanor, you know, pretty soft-spoken, I think, for the most part. And uh, I, <clears throat> I relate to him in a way that I, I, I kind of sort of see the world I, I feel like in a very similar way to him in that like he's very reserved and quiet. He observes a lot, uh, you know, by, by nature. That is something I do as well. My wife uh, constantly um, is surprised at the things that I notice. And she like, I didn't, had no way I, I didn't notice that. And I'm like, no, oh, yep, I did. I, I noticed thing. That, that's what I do. So it like, you know, it kind of feels to me like it's a very close to home episode. Also, when I was younger, I mean, I've told my MASH history here before. When I was younger and I would watch it as a, as a youth, which by the way, I'm actually sitting in the living room that I would watch it in right now. I hated the episodes with Sydney because Alan Arbus is such a naturalistic actor that the subtlety was boring to me as a kid every time there was he was on oh one of these and then and that bubbled over into things other things that he was in as well like other other shows that he was on if i would see him in something i would just immediately have kind of a bad taste in my mouth like oh this is just waiting to be boring <laughs> um <clears throat> but then uh as with so many things i'm discovering lately in watching them as an adult as as a different person i really 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 enjoy them much more than just your sort of standard mash episode even some of the great ones like you know i just feel like sydney's presence in some of these um episodes just uh, it it elevates everything that's going on around it i agree now of course comparing yourself to sydney freeman a little bit of a humble brag Corey, i have to say <laughs> uh but also accurate I would say that that's very accurate. You, you over our, the years of our friendship, you have noticed things about me that even I did not notice, and then you would point them out. And while hurtful, uh, I had to say, accurate, accurate. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of what a psychiatrist is supposed to do. They kind of notice these things and whatever. So, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, Sidney Friedman, uh, I've said it on numerous episodes. I, you know, to me, it's the show's I, I kind of give Colonel Potter the edge as the show's finest creation simply because Colonel Potter was a regular and they got, you know, seven, eight seasons out of him. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, so as a, as a, as a utility player, you know, as a guy who played every day, Colonel Potter is their greatest creation, but in another kind of realm, Sidney Friedman is their greatest creation. Cause, and, and it's the marriage of actor and character. And it's the kind of thing where like, if you ever wanted to get therapy, you would want Sidney Friedman. That's who you yeah. would want. It's you know? true. Yeah, I wouldn't want me, but I would want Sidney Friedman. Yeah, I um, mean, he's so warm, Alan so even, even said that. Like, he, he would sometimes just be on set with him and just sort of lapse into treating him as his therapist because that's just what you see is what you get. Yeah. Yeah, when I've seen Alan Arbus show up in other things, like he's in the he's in a, one of the Pam Greer exploitation movies playing a pimp. Uh, yeah, you know, you're just like coffee, right? I think it's coffee. Yeah, he has yeah. headline about uh, her name is Turnpike. You have to pay to get off. Uh, you're just like, <laughs> you know, wait, hold on, you know, <laughs> like it's just like very strange uh, to see him show because he's just so wonderful in this role. And I think giving him 
of the episode making you know to this point they had done the dear dot 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 episodes of course you and i covered dear mildred last last season it had always been one of the regulars doing the dear dot 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 dear dad you know whatever dear ma uh, dear mildred but here it's a side character and not that mash needed this because it was already by this point it was in its fifth season it was well ensconced as one of the most popular shows on television but it really works as like a new pilot you know mm-hmm. if you're a fan and you were tuning in for the first time this is a great way to learn what mash is because you're seeing it from the outsider's point of view and he's describing all the characters you know bj yeah. is this hawkeye hawkeye turned you know this is the great line about the anger turned inwards is depression anger turned sideways is hawkeye and you're like yes that's the perfect description of hawkeye the yep. perfect description of radar ever you know so i mean it's just and it's something uh i mean the general the creative generosity of alan alda is not surprising to me at this point that said he wrote and directed this episode and he hands it over almost entirely to the guest star which yeah <laughs> that's, that shows uh an amazing amount of creative confidence uh to do that yeah i, I was reading that it was actually it was actually just sort of knowing alan arvis that inspired him to write the episode. And, uh, I was, uh, there's a, a video where, um, Alan Alda is talking to, I think it's uh, the American experience or maybe Paley Institute. I'm not really sure, but he says that, um, <clears throat> that, um, the, the producer of the show, like wasn't into that idea because they thought, mm-hmm. well, if you have an actor plays depressed, then the audience is going to be depressed. Mm. And he's like, but <laughs> if the actor is Alan Arbus and the depression is internal, I think it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and he's right. I, you know, and uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I just, I, I am amazed at, at the things that Alan Alda is really good at. Right. And, Writing is one of them. Uh, and that episode he wrote, he directed, uh, and, and, you know, he, he acted in it. And uh, it's just, I mean, I know we're five seasons in, right? And if, so if you don't know five seasons, what, like 89, 80, 80 88 episodes? <laughs> and if you don't know Hawkeye. This is, yeah, this is 103. Point, this is the 100th episode. Yeah. Jeez. Um, if you don't know Hawkeye at this point, then you're not going to, right? Yeah. But he so <laughs> fully knows that character. Even like, even, 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 like, I think there is a sinister edge to Hawkeye, which I didn't notice necessarily when I was younger. I was just sort of thought of him as the laughing doctor, the hero. But there's, there's a darkness there. Um, and, uh, a sense of of um, like justice and and you know that isn't really like that isn't always front and center, right? But it but it's it's there's always something in the background where you're like, oh, geez, um, and and the fact that uh, you know in in the episode he has the um, the interaction with that that bomber pilot. And, you know, basically he's just like trying to show the bomber pilot that life is really awful in this war. (laughs) Right. And, you know, 
it's good that he's not the psychologist because I think he crossed an ethical boundary with that character. <laughs> you know, like I was sitting there watching it. And I'm like, well, well, wait, no, hold on. <laughs> he doesn't have a choice. I mean, it make he makes it, he, you know, and, and I guess that's sort of the point of this episode is how everybody copes with being in this war. Right. Um, but you know, this fighter pilot, he, he's signed up now he's in the military he doesn't have a choice to just stop right so he's found this way of of coping and and how he's he disassociates himself from it and okay maybe that doesn't mark him as a good person but i'm not entirely sure hawkeye has has the right to you know sort of foist that future ptsd on this guy, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but he chooses to, right? He 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 chooses to show him a little girl that he very well may have bombed, um, and and it's you know like while I'm watching that, I'm like, well, while I agree with it, uh, fundamentally, like that this guy is not really a great person, despite the fact that he seems very affable. I'm not sure that what Hawkeye did was the right thing um, or it may have been the right thing, but it wasn't necessarily the ethical thing. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to that scene when it happens, but you can see that when the, that character uh, talks so blithely about, you know, war, this, this war is something that I do a half hour day. Then it's uh, back home dinner at the officer's club. And he's just so mm-hmm. callous about it. And you can see the look cross Hawkeye's face of like, he's just horrendously. Offended. Oh, immediately. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's just disgusting. You know he's he, not going to tolerate that. Yeah, and he doesn't reveal it. He doesn't yell at the guy, but you could just see he's just kind of like looking at him like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? And yeah, um, I've said that uh, again. I've been saying that uh, probably since the beginning that they've they allowed Hawkeye to occasionally be a dick. Um, and that's, I think mm-hmm. that gave the character a nice, you know, round roundish quality. I mean, he had other qualities, of course, that rounded him out. But I like that they were willing, just, I mean, just this season, bug out when they're getting ready to leave and radar has the line about think of all the guys we operated on. And Hawkeye goes, right doctor, which is like his little ego kind of smacking yeah. radar down a little being like, you're not, and it's like hitting, you know, smacking radar down metaphorically is like hitting a puppy. You know, you're like, what's the matter yeah. with you? Yeah. But that's Hawkeye. That's who he is. He yep. just has that little bit of an edge to him. And so, yeah, they were Hawk, Alan Alda was willing to, to uh, kind of play those colors, but yeah, uh, you know, Alan Arbus or Sidney Friedman, even when Sidney's depressed, he's fun about it. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of got this lighthearted uh, feeling about it. And you can tell that right in the beginning of the episode, the, as the opening credits start, um, it plays this very kind of upbeat version of Suicide is Painless. The, and mm-hmm. it, it's amazing to me that a song called Suicide is Painless is so malleable in terms of its tone. Uh, because yeah. the, the, the version they use in this, it feels fun. You're like, oh, this is going to be kind of like a huh? fun episode, you know? Probably not a lot of heavy stakes. Well, of course, that's completely not true. But it's suckering you a little, especially since it's being played over the poker game. And you're like, oh, this will be fun. We're right. going to there is play. And even Margaret is playing poker, which is her first poker game. Uh, this is the first time she's ever been involved yeah, in one of the I poker games. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that whole interaction with all of them. I love that it opens with them yawning, by the way. <laughs> right. Like, Radar is rubbing his eyes, BJ is yawning. It's like four like, in the morning. Yeah, and, and, and the, but there's that peppy music playing, and I'm like, man, we've all been here. Like, we've all been in this situation where we just, we know we should probably be sleeping, but we need to do something to, <clears throat> to 
unwind and to socially connect with people. <laughs> so I love the, the, the thing with the betting of uh, you can only open if you're wearing civilian boxer shorts. And of course, Margaret's like, that's a ridiculous rule. You can. And Raider says, no, no, dealer's choice, ma'am. Can anybody open? And then she says, I'll open for a dollar. And of course, that, yeah. you know, that gets BJ and Hawkeye laughing uncontrollably. And you clear that they set this up. Yeah, they uh, and even bet, says yeah. to BJ, yeah, you owe me a buck and a half. And what I love about that is they know Margaret enough to know that she won't lie. That that's, yep. you know, she could just lie and not say anything. But she feels they know Margaret's going to kind of be compelled to tell the truth, especially when maybe she can get an advantage in the poker yep. game. And they know that about her. And that's how they, that's, you know, they kind of suckered her in a little. I love that they know her to that point. The subtext of that too is like, not necessarily subtext, but like the unseen kind of adventure is that somewhere in the 4077, somebody revealed to someone else <laughs> that Margaret wears boxer shorts. <laughs> and and it got to them, right? Like that to me is just absolutely hysterical. Like I love to think uh, about all of the, um, all of the, you know, nurses talking with, with the, you know, um, Hawkeye or, or, you know, even randomly somebody else. <laughs> I love Klinger's little sort of retort to that too. Is like, does a civilian girdle count? Yeah, panty girdle count? No, no, no. Boxes, that's it. No, 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 no. Uh, so they wake uh, Father Mulcahy up and he says, uh, I had a dream. I was in the Vatican and the Pope had a bad cold. And, uh, of course, Hawkeye's like, uh, do you want to analyze that, Sydney? You're the skull jockey. And Sydney has his first of great lines where he says, well, Freud said every dream is a wish, which I have ever – I have deeply internalized that. I, I don't know whether Freud really said that. I'm going to take Sydney at his word. Uh, but ever since then, I've always very much internalized that because when I have weird dreams, I always try and parse it as like, well, where's the wish part in that? What, what, what part of that was I wishing for right. in my subconscious? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, yeah. But again, I, you know, I'm assuming that Freud really said that. I think I, think I can trust Sydney. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Radar has the line about that his Uncle Ed had a dream uh, that he says when he woke up, a cow had eaten his pants. And, uh, of course, they say, well, is, uh, do you want to have uh, Dr. Friedman tell you what that means? And he, I love that Radar apologizes to Margaret. He goes, geez, I'm sorry. I didn't know it meant anything. But she's immediately assuming it's got some sort of <laughs> dirty meaning because I guess it involves eating someone's pants yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So they, uh, Sydney uh, says, you know, he's going to beg off. He says, I gotta, I'm going to write a letter. And Hawkeye has this line where he says, uh, are you okay? And Alan Arbus says, and you, it's funny, um, if you, li if you listen to the episode, you can sort of hear it. But if you look at the, I watched it with subtitles on and they, you know, it's literally in the subtitles where he goes, yeah, what do I, how do I look? And he's, I think he flubs the mm -hmm. line. I think he meant to say, how do I look? And he starts with what do, how do I look? And again, it, it that kind of stuff gives this such a beautifully unforced feeling of like that Sydney wasn't prepared for mm -hmm. that question. And he just, yeah, what, how do I look? It's so beautiful that it just feels so real. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, he's, he is just like, he is definitely one of those actors and totally underappreciated, right? But he's one of those actors from that sort of generation of, of actors that's just so, 
subtle in the way that they've inhabited, you know, the role. Like, like method without being De Niro about it, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, or without, yeah. without being, without being, you know, um, Superman's dad about it. His name's escaping me right now, which is a crime I know, but Marlon um, Brando. Marlon Brando. Thank you. Like, like, you know, he doesn't have tricks. He doesn't have, uh, you know, he doesn't turn everything up to 11 because it's dramatic to do so. He just, he's got this very subdued, almost, I, like, I, when I think of that kind of acting, I think of, like, like French New Wave movies <laughs> in a really weird way. Uh, and so it's, it, it just, it's, so, it's so subtle and, and delicate, the way he handles that character. It's so great. Yeah. Um, so he starts to write the letter, and, uh, and we find out he's writing a letter to Sigmund Freud. And he says he's been a little depressed, and he says he's come to a sort of spa. The waters are pretty good here. And he says the inmates have a great defense against the system. And while he's talking... Uh, we see BJ and Hawkeye playing the cards, and he mentions to Margaret, "Let's see, let me see your openers." And she puts the cards down. I'm not talking about your cards. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then he does a, a a very loud dog barking. Of course, BJ responds, "That's great. Can you do a dog? Can you do and, a dog?" <laughs> and it's you know, I mean, this is the kind of thing where I have never, I've always wanted to have like a weekly poker game. I've never had that in my life. I've never lived anywhere where I had more than say any one friend in any given area. It's sad for me, but it's the truth. I, and you know, look, I don't want to be in Korea. I don't, I don't want to be in a war. I don't want to serve. I'm never going to luckily, uh, knock on wood. Uh, we, you know what, if, if there's ever any army that needs me, we're in sorry shape at that point. Um, <laughs> but podcasting division. Yeah. Oh, Lordy, Lordy. Um, <laughs> we need someone to comment on pop culture, but I, like I look at these card games, like the Deal Me Out, and you know other episodes where they've played cards, and I just want to be part of this so bad. Yeah, I always, I, I, I always felt like you know Star Trek: The Next Generation was riffing on that. Um, oh right, the, when they would you do know, that. like yeah, they were, yeah, yeah. they were, they were pulling from Mash. Like that was kind of the vibe that I got. The whole series um, ends with a card game. Yeah, it ends with a card game, and and. Yeah, no, I, I get you. I think that's the secret. That is the that is the the secret sauce of of everything. Every movie that takes movie or TV show that takes place in a branch of the military or in a military action or any kind of conflict, the fundamental thing that that movie is about is about camaraderie, mm-hmm. right? Like White Christmas. That movie mm-hmm. is is not about the Second World War. It's not <laughs> about a TV show or a musical group. It's about camaraderie. It's about totally. people getting together and doing things for their friends. Mash, the same thing. This is about people together trying to cope with a very intense thing. So it's like, it really, those scenes where they're playing poker, they really bring that. <laughs> if that's not something that you have, like a large group of people that you're with, it really does make you want to sort of be a part of that. <laughs> Yeah, completely. It just sounds like so much fun uh, to to be part. And again, it's, and the the rapport between Alden and Farrell is just you know in one season in flawless. It's just flawless. I mean, there's a moment where BJ throws like a pretzel in the air and Hawkeye catches it, and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's just, oh this is so wonderful. And then we get into the stuff that uh, Sydney starts describing, and we get these little character profiles. Again, it feels like if you're a new viewer. Uh, this is great because you're getting these little snapshots and Hawkeye is doing rounds uh, in a tux 
and flippers and kind of funny glasses. And he's just coming in and being ridiculous. Um, and he has like a pith helmet on and he's making mm-hmm. jokes about, he grabs the, the he checks the, uh, the pulse of uh, one patient. He says, how long have you had that throbbing in your wrist? <laughs> and he calls the nurse and the nurse comes over and she says, did you call me doctor? Why should I call you doctor? I'm the surgeon. Yep. And I, I like that they throw in, in the middle of all of this silliness, he points to the chart and he says, uh, somebody's 15 minutes late about his medication. So I love yep. that they throw that little bit in and it's like, okay, of course, he's still a doctor. He's still paying attention to what he's doing in the middle of just trying to cheer everybody up. But he's also serious when it, when it needs to be serious. Yeah. Oh, I, I love that. I love my, my, my favorite joke in that scene was when he takes, he's got the, uh, the clipboard upside down and he mm-hmm. tells the guy that something's wrong with his feet and he's like, doc, yeah. it's my head. And then he turns the clipboard around. I th- that absolutely hilarious. I howled at that when I was watching it again earlier. <laughs> yeah. That, that's such a, and you know, ironically another, you know, I, I think I told you I had a rather lengthy drive earlier this week and I was listening to a lot of mash cast. Um, and I, on my way up and I caught an episode that I was on previously. And in that episode, uh, he basically pretends to be Groucho Marx there too. So mm-hmm. like you can see that Alan Alda has a real soft spot for Groucho. <laughs> oh, completely. Absolutely. Yeah. He absolutely. Lo- and he loves the, just the, the cadence of it and stuff like that. By the way, yeah. the, uh, the patient who uh, Hawkeye talks to where he says, it's my head doc is uh, G- his name is J Andrew Kenny. Um, he is just named the patient. Uh, he was on TV shows like Marcus Welby. He was in the movie Grease. And, of course, the unofficial MASH spinoff, BJ and the Bear. So he had a lot of 70s credits. <laughs> and uh, so, Wait, we uh, remember that show differently. <laughs> I never tire of that joke. I just have it in every time it comes up. <laughs> so then we're back to the poker game. Um, uh, Klinger is trying to sell some of his jewelry to stay in the game. He uh, sells earrings, which Margaret buys. Love that. Uh, I'll, Love I'll, that take, I'll take him for two fifty. dollars <laughs> 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 so, You know, it's hard to imagine that the... the um, the sartorial choices of Klinger and Margaret would overlap uh. <laughs> anyway. And yet, yet they do. Um, now this scene where we, uh, where Sydney describes Klinger, this scene was always cut in syndication. I never saw this until I got, oh, the is DVD. That so? yeah. Uh, where he pretends to have hit and gotten hit in the head with a chopper blade, which of course, Colonel Potter has the great response. If Klinger had been hit in the head with a chopper blade, he'd look like a malted milk, which is such a wonderful, strangely evocative phrase. And yeah. uh, Klinger is being helped by uh, Private Habib, who is named here. Private Habib is played by an actor named Bart Braverman, who has had a pretty amazing career. He's still working to this day. He was in a couple of hundred things. Just a few of his credits are the Ray Harryhausen movie, 20 Million Miles to Earth. He was in the okay. Great Texas Dynamite Chase. He played Magic Mongo on the Croft Super Show. Uh <laughs> He was a voice on the Plastic Man cartoon, and he's on a show called Shut Eye. I don't know what that is, but it's it's a 2021 social. The, the, he keeps working. Now, again, I never saw this until I got the DVDs. So there's this whole bit where Klinger's been hit in the head, and he only talks in Arabic. So we it. see these subtitles where he's just saying nonsensical stuff about camels and things like that. In your mind, Corey, is Habib in on it, or is he does he is he believing what Klinger is doing, or is I can never tell whether Habib is in on the scam and they're trying to scam Potter together. It's funny because I watched that scene twice today, just specifically because I was asking myself that question. I didn't come up with a satisfying answer, but (laughs) I, I I mean, if he is in on it, he's doing a hell of a job selling it. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Like even even to the point where he runs and grabs the bucket of water and throws it on his face. Like, you know, well, I mean, I wouldn't put it past Klinger to sort of put himself in air quotes harm's way um, <laughs> to, 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 you know, make the, the, the argument that he's gone off his rocker. Um, but I, I, you know, he just seems so like radar about it, like so authentic about it that I just, I, I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and Potter's just not going for it. And, and it's funny is that later on in a later scene, uh, and we'll mention it when we get there, Klinger speaks Arabic to Margaret. Mm. And it, and because this scene was missing in the syndicated version, I never, I was it like, why is, he, why is he talking in Arabic? I just thought he was just yeah. goofing around or something. Uh, but they, of course, they you know they give it context. So now we're back to Sydney writing the letter. He has a great line. I'm, presumably, it's an Alan Alda line where he talks about everybody, and he says, um, "These people are faced with aggression in its most brutal form." Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a really great description of like the last five years that we sort of live with is like <laughs> aggression, and it's like just the veneer of even faking why you're doing this has been pulled away. And now it's just aggression. And it's, of course we're yeah. living through it. We're literally living through it right now. Um, but I feel like a lot of people out there have just ripped the mask off and it's just pure aggression in its most beautiful, brutal form. And there's just something uh, so wonderfully, not beautiful about that phrase, but it's effective and direct just the way that uh, Sydney refers to it as dealing with it in, in its most aggressive form. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I jotted that note, that line down as well in my notes because it's just it's, it's very. It, I mean, I, I suppose most lines in this episode were Alan Alda lines, but it does seem to very much encapsulate Alan Alda, uh, his opinion on what that what war in general is like, right? Yep. Um, so then we get a montage of the practical jokes that have been going on, and we see that the. The uh, bench uh, that Frank sits on, and the mess tent collapses under him, and it sends him flying, which everyone finds funny. And then even Sidney says, you know, no one is safe. Rank makes no difference. And then we see that Potter has fallen for the old, uh, whatever that gunk is, whatever they, what is that, like shoe polish or something? I, I never heard shoe of shoe polish, yeah. Shoe polish, yeah, in the, in the binoculars. And, mm-hmm. of course, Radar sees it. And, again, great acting. Gary Berg, I would say it's really hard to convincingly laugh because, of yeah. course, laughing is so spontaneous but man uh Berghoff sells it like he just and the way that uh harry morgan never tips it like he's just kind of confused he's just kind of looking around like what the hell is radar what and he kind of looks over his shoulder at one point and he's just baffled like why is why is o'reilly laughing like that and he rolls himself right out of the jeep which is a, a, a great moment um and so then uh sydney mentions the, the line i mentioned earlier where he says anger turned Inward is depression, anger turned sideways is Hawkeye. And that's when we meet uh, Hathaway, the bomber pilot, as I mentioned, played by Charles Frank. This would be the first of two mashes that he would appear in. He played a different character in season six. He was in TV shows like Life Goes On, All My Children, Falcon Crest, and a movie that I'm only mentioning simply for the title, Tarantulas, The Deadly Cargo, which I I desperately want to see now. Um, so he lands in front of uh, Rosie's bar and he's wounded and he says, you know, are you a doctor? And he says, I'll take a look at your leg. And he says, are you a doctor? Uh, that's what people think here. I just really like legs. Right. And then, yeah. And then in the, in post-op, we get the scene where uh, he's wrapping him up and we find out that this guy goes home every night to the war. His wife is in Tokyo. 
And uh, he drops his bombs and goes and has dinner with his wife, which I didn't know was a thing. Uh, neither did I. I. That was a real surprise to me. I mean, I don't, I guess I'd want to confirm it, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, seems plausible, right? I mean, I, I didn't know that you could have members of your family at the base. I didn't know that. I mean, I know that in, in, in America, like, you know, back home, you can do that. Like lots of, obviously military families live on bases. I just didn't know that that could be something that would be going on like during a war overseas. Uh, but yeah, I well, guess, Jap- I guess Japan had a lot of us military bases after, after the end of the second world war. So, yeah, maybe so. you know, I, I guess that makes, I know a lot of families of military people um, who lived in Japan um, on bases. So, uh, we actually not far from where I live. There's a former military base. Most of the area of, of of the town nearest to us, one area of it was all base housing, and you can see it when you drive around because it's very base housing. <laughs> yeah. um, so we, you know, I grew up with a lot of people who were Air Force brats in particular, and a lot of them had lived Germany, um, Japan different places in the South South Pacific, just living on, on bases. Hmm. Well, yeah. Um, now I don't think just the comment uh, about, you know, he's like, I couldn't fly. I wouldn't touch this war. That's a, that's already setting Hawkeye off. But then there's the line where uh, they compare their boots and he says, what have you been walking in red clay, which is not a super great line. Nobody would say that like who what, red clay right. is that a thing but it's it's a line to get to the next line where hawkeye right. says no blood and the way that hathaway just kind of shrugs it off he just kind of goes right you know oh all right and that, i think but i think it's the the combo of those two things and he's talking about how the sky is a beautiful blue you fly for a while in that stillness you take a reading press a button drop your load and hawkeye says you've never seen the people you've been bombing and he goes nah never I've been a lucky guy. And Hawkeye makes a joke about, you know, flying so high with your head in the sky, but you could see it. We have all lived with Alan Alder across five years now. You see across his face that he is pretty horrified at this guy. Yeah. I mean, Hawkeye is, is the moral authority, right? Uh, In the, in this series in particular, but, and, and I think that Hawkeye is aware of that as well. Yeah. Right. Like he's not just that thematically. Like I think Hawkeye feels like he is the moral authority of the Korean war, (laughs) you know, like I, I really do. And, you know, that sort of explains why things end for Hawkeye the way they do ultimately. But, Mm. um, you know, he, yeah, he really was not all right with this dude being all right with what he does, you know? And he's kind of proud of it. The way the guy, he's sort of proud, you know, he's like, Oh, if I couldn't fly, I wouldn't touch this war. Like he's kind of, he's like being a, like a dilettante, you know, he's just like, Oh, oh yeah. Hell, yeah. yeah all right. So. Yeah. He's not even saying like, boy, I'm lucky, you no. know, boy, I'm really lucky that I get to spend my, the evenings with my wife and I don't really ever get to, he's kind of, you know, he's, he's clueless in his cluelessness, uh, which is again, the thing that sets Hawkeye off. So then yeah. back, what's back, the expression? He's uh he was born on, Oh, born on born you born on third and thought he hit a triple. Yeah, right. Yeah, so back at the swamp, um, uh, we see the the pile of crap everywhere, and uh, of course, uh, Sydney says, "Can't imagine why you guys 
call this place the swamp. Oh, no, I was just laughing. I thought that was a funny line. Yeah, <laughs> can't imagine what guys call this place the swamp. And uh, they see BJ reading the book, and Sydney gets saying, that's a private letter. And then he says, well, if, if it's private, why'd you leave it under your pillow? Which is like, that ain't cool, yeah. guys. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no. Another sort of ethical transgression. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, there's, and they're so blithe about it they're just yeah. like yeah all right yeah we we took it. it was under your pillow we're looking at it like what <laughs> okay yeah Jeez. i think that that's the flip side of camaraderie right like that they, they all they're so uh you know up in each other's grills all the time <laughs> that they just any sort of sense of boundary and and privacy is kind of you know i mean they have to shower together for goodness sake i guess so yeah um, and then they mentioned that uh, he says, we couldn't help but notice you came for the poker game and stayed for two weeks. Yeah. And uh, you know that I, I, in an alternate universe, I wanted to see every day of that, you know, right. like, give me an episode yeah. of every day of Sydney staying for two weeks. Cause I just love this yeah. character so much. <laughs> it's like, Oh gosh, what a great book that would be. Wouldn't it? <sighs> like in a, a, a whole book of just, you know, letters to Sigmund. Oh, oh that'd my be amazing. God. So good. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Sydney, you know, does explains why he's there and he talks about, uh, that he needs a, a vacation and he records the 477 as a vacation, which of course Hawkeye is horrified of beer. It's a vacation. Swiss Alps is a vacation. This is a fungus convention in near in Atlantic city. And that's when Sydney talks about that winter's the busy season here. The night days get shorter. The nights get colder and 15 cases a week total crack ups which doesn't feel like maybe you know technically psych, psych uh, you know yeah. official psychiatric talk but okay no. I think things get pretty no. loose here it's shop talk right yeah shop yeah uh and then he gets into this you know this great story where he talks about that there is this one kid who heard voices and telling him to kill himself and he says uh, one day he seemed very calm and like he'd made a decision and he says, uh, that usually, you know, that usually means they made a decision, but somehow I missed it. And he says later that night, that sweet, funny, troubled kid listened to the voices. And there's this, they cut to Hawkeye and BJ who of course are, uh, react with the appropriate, you know, dismay of what he's telling him. And then he has the line about, uh, you know, then I started sleeping late not doing my work. And that of course leads to Frank Burns popping up from under his blanket and insulting Sidney Friedman. And yep. to this, to this point, Frank had never, even though Sidney Friedman is clearly part of the gang that Frank is so dismissive of, he's never been that insulting to Sidney directly. And here we see that Frank is just a hopeless ass that even when it's Sidney Friedman, because you feel that a lot of times the reason Frank is so dismissive of everybody is because they're lower in rank to him. Mm-hmm. But may, but Sidney Freeman's a major, you know, Sidney's on Frank's level, but even he still can't help himself. He's just such a dick in this episode. Yeah. I mean, later on you, you, you know, he mentions, he said he has a line where you can tell he has just sort of an inherent distrust of a psychiatrist. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's 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 interesting to me because I'm watching that that scene. Is it, he says Frank says um, something I've actually borrowed 
in the past, he says, uh, it makes no never mind. <laughs> makes me no uh, make never me mind. no never mind. I, I've actually said that, and, and I <laughs> didn't realize where it came from. Um, but I, I've I've used that like a turn of phrase to basically say, oh, I don't really doesn't really bother me. I don't care. Um, and uh, it totally comes from this episode, and I didn't realize that. Um, but then he says, I've got all my cookies, and when he says that, my thought is. I don't, I mean, we discussed, you know, before we started recording, um, the, uh, the ultimate result of, of Frank's career in the war. Um, and I wondered while I was watching it, is this foreshadowing? Um, mm. I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that per- perhaps it was, but, you know, I know that um, you know, they knew that everybody wasn't going to stick on the show forever. So maybe they were, you know, putting in, I guess we'd call them Easter eggs at this point or, hmm. or like little, little plot points that people could look back on later. Um, I don't know if they always had in their mind that, that Frank was not going to have all of his cookies at some point. Right. Um, but when he said that, I was like, oh man, is this foreshadowing? Because, you know, he clearly doesn't. <laughs> He's not the most well-assembled person no, there. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> and I it don't, gets much worse from there, you know? Yeah, I don't think that they knew that Larry Linville wasn't coming back for season six. I think that was an in-between season to yeah. season. So I think I, they always did write Frank. He, he has had other episodes where he's like, people who need psychiatry uh, have a hole in the head or so. you know? Like, he's mm-hmm. always dismissive of anything that would be regarded as sort of touchy-feely kind of stuff so i'm sure he just regards Sidney freeman's work as useless and silly or whatever but but right uh, it's, it's, yeah know. uh and then it culminates with a practical joke where he puts his helmet on and there's an egg in there and it smashes over his <laughs> face which is just a waste of a fresh egg they keep talking yeah. about how tough it is to get fresh eggs at the 477 that's just a waste of a good egg uh pj you no know, you know it it's not a waste if it's a joke i think that's the that's that that's the overall ethos of of food scarcity at the 407 i guess so so. um and that's the act break uh for the for the episode and then we come back and uh clinger i mean excuse me clinger sydney friedman is uh is again running notes and there's this great little quiet moment that's not any of the main characters where he says uh, you know they they patch up these people like loaves in a bread truck but he says, mm-hmm. but they never forget that those packages are people. And we see through the foggy window as they are loading a patient into a ambulance. Um, the guy loading uh, the guy the, the guy loading the patient in lets him uh, take a drag off his cigarette. Yep, uh, that. that's a great little moment. Uh, it's a you know, beautiful character moment. Yeah, yep. uh, and it's not any of the main characters. It's just some I can't even really tell who it is. But I love that that they you know give that to the guy. And then of course that leads in the next moment where the jeep takes off rounds the corner and then we hear it crash and we see that radar sees it. And then we pan over and we see that the, uh, the Jeep has uh, toppled over on this little site, this slight little, it's not a bridge, but there's like a little bit of a dirt road. That's kind of on the either side the of wash it. Out or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 And we see that it is uh, flipped over and all the patients have to get pulled out. And they talk about that. Uh, this one person's stitching has come out. Someone else is in shock. Uh, Potter comes running out. And he starts barking orders, and there, uh, this moment is really one of the great moments of 
the episode and certainly uh, well certainly the episode i would say even the season where we see radar having just been up at the front and he staggers to over to colonel potter and he's obviously upset mm-hmm. over something and we don't know what he's upset about and potter yells who the hell did this was o'donnell driving and he says, you know, he doesn't, he's not that klutz. He's not making any points getting them there fast. He's got to get in there in one piece. Uh, tell O'Donnell, I want to see him in my office. And this time you can shake his can. You got that. And he barks at Radar. And then, of course, Radar has that just pause. And he says, he's dead, sir. And there's this, again, great pause by Potter where he is realizing he's embarrassed that he's been yelling at Radar over mm-hmm. this. And then the enormity of it. And then silently, he just turns around and walks away. Uh, and it's an absolutely fantastic moment, both the acting and the directing by Alan Alda. It's just a perfectly composed way to put that scene across. I have, I have stars around that exact. I, I have Potter's face written on my, uh, on my notes with stars around it. I mm-hmm. it's like that to me, you know, I, I, I like, I, Potter is my favorite commander <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, for uh, multiple reasons, but I just think Harry Morgan, right, in that he's such a gifted actor, and he, I think you don't necessarily you don't notice it in the big the big things, right? It's like the little things, and he just nails that moment because you you can see like. He transitions through a series of emotions in a very short <laughs> yeah. amount of time, yeah. and you yeah. can see them all happen. It's not, it's not invisible, <laughs> and you're not intuiting, right? Like it is very clear how Colonel Potter feels about this event. Um, it, you don't have to. It's not guesswork. You're not like, oh well, maybe it means this or maybe it means that. Nope, it's very clear. He's embarrassed that he shouted. He's upset that the person is dead. He's he's angry at the loss of life, and he just doesn't want to talk about it right now. Yeah, it's not the twelve stages of grief, but it's like the seven. You know, it's like you know, yeah. he gives the, the least that many. Uh, and I will say, the scene is so good that it took me—I don't know—the first five hundred times that I've seen this episode that it features a mistake. <laughs> uh, and I, I hate to even bring it up because it seems a little churlish. Because who really cares? But I noticed that those two scenes are—they don't match up. Uh, if you look behind Colonel Potter when he yells at Radar. Uh, he is kind of in the middle of the kind of there's nothing around him for a good 20 or 30 paces. And then when they immediately cut to the next shot of him turning on his heel and walking away, all of a sudden post-op is right behind him. Uh, and you're like, wait a minute, where did the post-op building come from? It wasn't there yeah. a second ago. And it's because they probably had to, you know, they shot it at two different times and they didn't quite match it up uh, correctly. Again, I am not bringing this up to be a jerk in any way because who cares it still really works but it was the kind of thing where in, in fact if anything i'm complimenting the scene the scene is so good that yeah, i didn't notice that, that until, until i've seen this episode a thousand times i went wait a minute that building wasn't there a second ago i don't even notice that but it's fine it's like a it's a glaring continuity error that you just don't care about because yep. the scene you're not looking at the backgrounds no. you're looking at the face you know one of the things i think too that maybe you know, um, you know, because they come back to that death later on in the episode. And, you know, I think a part of what Potter is trying to <laughs> to work out, and this is me intuiting somewhat, despite what I just said a moment ago, but I think it troubles him 
that radar has to experience this much trauma, mm. right? Um, because radar is clearly visibly shaken. Yeah, yeah. To the point where he doesn't say a word, and normally when Potter is barking orders at him, he's sort of like saying what he's going to say next. You know what I mean? He's doing his radar thing where he's like responding in this sort of like subaudible tone, but not here. He's just kind of like very, very affected by what just happened. Um, and Colonel Potter just, you know, basically shouted at him for something that was, you know, he, he just didn't know. So like, you could just tell that that's just a very, very potent little scene. You know, it doesn't take much of the episode, but it's a big scene. It's a big yeah. piece of the story. Yeah, it's really, it's fantastic. Um, and so then they are putting, uh, they're, they're getting everybody back onto stretchers, back in the post-op. And then again, there's a great little moment where uh, Sydney offers to carry a litter with Hawkeye. And Hawkeye says regarding Hathaway, who's standing there, no, I want him to do it. Mm-hmm. And of course, in that moment, we don't know why that it just goes by. It doesn't seem to really make any sense. But of course, we're going to find out in a minute why it means. But again, it's a great little subtle thing of Hawkeye has been orchestrating this. You know, Hawkeye's putting mm-hmm. this putting this plan together. Um, we got we got BJ pulling the silly practical jokes, and Hawkeye's pulling something else, but it's a lot more serious. So then Sydney helps out Father Mulcahy bring in a litter, and then we get into his little profile of Father Mulcahy about that he says he's got a a right hook that could stop a truck. And then he says, without absolutely no training, he seems to be a complete natural as a therapist. And he starts talking to a patient uh, who is saying he's never going to get back in another ambulance, no matter what happens. And of course, Mulcahy, he says, well, uh, that's fine. We'll put you on a nice slow ship. Uh, you'll see your family yep. in four to six months. And the guy's like, <laughs> four to six months. He's like, well, that's how long it's going to take. And he says, well, you know, when's the next ambulance in an hour or so? What, what's taking so long? So he immediately talks the guy out of uh, his, uh, his reticence to get on a ship. Now Yeah, that actor, his voice might That's sound a little familiar. Uh, that Very is of familiar. course, Sal Vescuso, who was the voice of the PA on mash all the way until 1979. This was the first. Holy cat. Yeah. He's the, he's the guy. He's the, you know, attention, all personnel. He, this is his yeah. first of two mashes on screen. Uh, but yeah, he was the uncredited PA announcer from like the third season all the way until like the eighth season. It's kind of amazing. I don't know why they decided to give him a chance here or whatever. Um, he was in other TV shows like Barney Miller, Love Boat, ER, Scandal, 911. He's still working to this day. So um, I got to say, if I was ever friends with Salvas Cuso, I would have him record my outgoing phone message. Oh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just need to have that. No, he was so familiar looking. I, and I'm like, I, you know, he's got one of those faces. You know, yep. when you watch TV from the 70s in particular, you see faces that you saw on all the other TV shows in the 70s so you, and, and early 80s. And you just kind of have to be like, oh, he's just character actor number 43 that showed up on Knight Rider. And that's why he sticks in my head, right? Yep. Um, but no, that voice was super familiar. You know, I really like that scene too because of what it it kind of says about about Sydney. Like, it really exposes his bias, like as a, a clinician. <laughs> when he says that Father Mulcahy he has no training, he's an ordained priest. They get mm. lots of training. <laughs> mm. You know, I mean, it may not, but it isn't necessarily training that Sydney has any particular reason to respect. And 
you know, I, I, I think that that was really an interesting thing to add in there. I don't know if that was, was the intent, but I'm like, well, that's really interesting. And that's a logical, you know, bias for a, a medical, you know, a, a, a psychiatrist to have. Um, but it was interesting because it was just like, I, I like everything he was saying about Father Mulcahy was about how he underestimated Father Mulcahy. He says that he's uh, shy and retiring, and but he has a left hook that could stop a truck or something right. like yep, that. Yep, yep, yep. You know, and he was just like, it just sort of, just sort of perpetually, un, you know, he was surprised that he had underestimated Father Mulcahy. And I, I, I really liked that about that about that particular scene. So that's funny. I never took it that way. I always took it as that he was saying, okay, he doesn't have any, like, obviously combat training. He's not, he's not, he has no training dealing with people about to die or maybe about to die. Uh, that's, that's always how I took it. Now, I mean, obviously as a priest, he's dealing with potentially dealing people with real problems. Right. Uh, but, but yeah, I always took it. At, I mean, although of course he's been at the 477 for a little while. So sure. he's got some training uh, at some point, but yeah, okay. He is perfect in that. Just the way it's like, you know, four to six, four to six months, like four to six months. Um, so then uh, we get to his profile of Margaret where they have, they share a drink back at the, uh, back in the swamp. And, uh, you know, she says, oh, we, you know, been hurt, even laying kind of low, feeling kind of low. Everybody looks out for each other here. And she talks about, you know, I wouldn't get upset. I don't permit it, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, she mentions about, uh, you know, my fiance celebrated his birthday in Tokyo uh, without me. And, you know, Sydney says, oh, I'm, that sounds, you know, that, that's unfortunate. And she says, I'm, you know, he says, uh, you know, that's, uh, what does he say? He says, oh, he must miss you very much. And she goes, no, they had a very good time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he goes, I see. And so right there, we're like, what, three episodes after she got engaged? Four? And they're already layering in that Penobscot is uh, less than loyal. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh... That was something that it was well, not particularly surprising. Um, you, you had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, uh, or a couple of episodes ago, uh, Dan for I think it was for Bug Out. Yeah, Dan Greenfield, and he completely recontextualized the way I think of Margaret <laughs> <laughs> in that one like episode. I, I forget exactly what he brought up, but he was talking about how really like this season is where you're really starting to see like the, the sort of reclamation of Margaret as a, as a whole character. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think he's, he's, he's dead on accurate about that. And, and this scene is sort of one of those scenes that sort of, I was playing back Margaret things in, in my mind while I was on this long drive listening to Mashcast, And um, you know, I think the sort of through line for Margaret um and it, it struck me when he was talking about her scene where she asks if the invading army, um, you oh, know, rapes prisoners. Women. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, and, and about how frightened she must be and, 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 you know, just thinking, well, she just must be frightened all the time. Really in this scenario, she's one of just a handful of women in the midst of this, you know, kind of environment. And, and, uh, you know, thinking back as a through line through her characters, I always thought she was gravitated toward power. And I don't think that's a very generous read, actually, after having you know, heard Dan, um, Dan's comments on it. I think that she was gravitating toward protection. 
mm. right? Because she she was afraid, and and I think that this, uh, you know, sort of re um, reinforces that idea with this Penobscot guy because um, that's another main connection, by the way. But we'll, I'll get back to that in a minute. But um, she, you know, you know, she knows right as of this episode that he's a a heel, um, but he offers a, a sense of security and stability for her and, and a potential way out of this environment. That's, you know, probably quite frightening for her. Mm-hmm. They had always uh, intended to get her divorced. That was from the beginning. They, they got her married to get her divorced. That was always a yeah. storyline they were going to end. It. So, uh, but I thought it was, you know, again, it was interesting that they brought it up that soon and you would almost be like, Oh, why would you get married to this guy? If he's already cheating on you, Good mm-hmm. Lord. But it did make sense. Like Dan said, and what you just said, that, that she's got a need that Frank Burns cannot fulfill. Right. And she's tired of kind of messing around in every sense of that word. And so that's why she's sort of tolerating this. And, uh, but of course that leads to a wonderfully Margaret esque crack up where she gets offended <laughs> at the jock strap. Now right. you, you don't even see the jock strap. I saw a note that they said Gene Reynolds was told CBS said, you can't even show it. It's it's too say jockstrap. It's probably. too it's too offensive. You can't even mm-hmm. show it. So when when uh, for the longest time when when Sidney Friedman is like the athletic supporter. By the way, he says supporter. <laughs> I love that, but not supporter. <laughs> supporter. I like he puts his hand on it, and I'm like, is that what that is? Because I can't even <laughs> tell that that's what it is. But of course, they just had to kind of put some you know generic looking material next to him and say, oh, that's the jockstrap, and that gets her so deeply offended. Yeah, um, that that whole sequence with her is is fantastic. Sydney says that she, I think he said she's six kinds of passion looking for an exit. Looking for an exit, yeah. <laughs> what a great line! Like, holy cow, that's like that's like a Dashiell Hammett line, right? Like that is like <laughs> such a great like little, you know, um, like sort of film noir esque kind of line, and and. Uh, I, I love that. I also, you know, when Margaret says in strength, there is serenity. <laughs> and that like again, that reinforces, right? Like instead of live, love, laugh, <laughs> or live, laugh, love, yeah, you have a sign in your house that says in strength, there is serenity. <laughs> but, um, sounds, yeah, that's crazy. But, uh, but that sort of reinforces that idea too of, of, of she is just, she's looking for strength because it allows her to feel, secure yep yeah <laughs> i love how offended she is and she's like they're tre- they're a drunken lecherous cretins and yeah. it's like it's evil it's, it's a piece of <laughs> medical equipment like why are you so if it's not sexual no it's a it's the it's the antithesis of, of sexual it's a jockstrap like it's so funny that she's so offended uh and then of course as i've you know said you know loretta swit could get some serious volume when she wanted mm-hmm. to, and she's like, "Will you please put your hat on it?" And she's screaming yeah, at the top of her lungs. Uh, <laughs> and I love that when she's first offended, and and Sydney's just looking around like, "What the hell? What, what is she? What is she talking about?" Uh, and then that leads him to say, "You know, some people uh, refuse; they can't, won't deal with pain. They just refuse delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> just like, nope, just not going to take it." Uh, and then we're back in, presumably, uh, this is obviously now the scene we just had with Margaret is at night, and now we're during the day. And so they're jumping around time-wise, because obviously this scene in the in post-op took place just after the scene of the crashing 
ambulance, which is during the day. So that scene sort of is split in the middle of uh, these two moments. And this is where uh, we see that one of the uh, people that Potter was working on is a little girl and he's uh, Hathaway. The chopper pilot is absolutely horrified. And he says, well, who did it? Our side or their side? And they're like, what does it matter? And he says, it matters a lot. And he's like, not to, not to her. And then he runs out and I like how Hathaway immediately knows that he was set up. I, I like mm-hmm. that they at least give him that. He's yep. not that stupid that he doesn't see that. And he says, you know, you're a real SOB. You know that? I love that. Yep. I think that's great. And I love that Hawkeye kind of gives him the benefit of the doubt where he says, you seem like a nice guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Too nice to think anything could be a, you know, a clean war. And so I, I like that he... He, you know, he doesn't pile on with the insults. Like he's kind of like, look, man, I know I just threw you for a loop, but I, I, you seem like a decent enough person. This is why I did it. Yeah. He's not doing it to be cruel necessarily. Yeah. I think probably anger precipitated it, but he's not, he's not doing it to be a jerk to that guy. I think he genuinely thinks that, that he's hiding from it and he wants to, you know, expose it to him so that he can deal with it, you know, maybe deal with his own trauma that he might be hiding from, which does seem to be a theme in this episode too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I do wish if I, if I really want to find something to, to, you know, pick on this episode, which is why do I feel the need to do that? I wish that maybe he had gotten a little something at the end of the show. I don't even know what, but it feels just ever so slightly incomplete that yeah. we don't see him after this. Like he gets devastated and that's it. Like we're like, okay, Hawkeye just leveled the guy and uh, that's it. That's it for his scene. But again, I, you know, I mean, I wouldn't even know what you would throw in that wouldn't feel incredibly contrived anyway. Um, so then we get to uh, Sydney writing his letter outside and he gets to talk to Frank and uh, Frank reveals that uh, he's troubled that his wife seems to be changing while he's over here. And he talks about, I got a picture of my wife wearing slacks walking away from the camera. And I love that Larry <laughs> Linville does that little gesture with his arm, like walking uh-huh. away from the camera. And <laughs> he does not uh, like the idea that his wife is maybe uh, feeling a little independent. And uh, mm-hmm. I love when he says, uh, oh, come on, I'll tell you. You've probably heard it all. And and just to amuse himself, Sidney goes, oh, I thought I've heard it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. Like that was sort of my... Like I was interpreting that as he didn't really want to talk to Frank no. about this because it like, <laughs> like it you know he was just like okay this isn't I don't really want to participate in this so maybe I can scare him off but it didn't work. It says something that he doesn't. We don't hear him write about Frank in the letter. He has this encounter with Frank, but he doesn't write. You know he's like dear Sigmund. Frank Burns is a yada yada. It's almost like Frank's not worth analyzing. Yeah, you know in this context yeah. so he's like okay fine plus well, by the way i love the detail that frank is digging a um you know d- digging a, a pit a bomb crater a bit you know like a foxhole air raid crater, yeah. You know, yeah for an air raid uh first of all he should not be doing that that that's clearly not something he should be doing on the on the campground right. secondly he's got a knit wool cap on because it's cold and he's got his fig leaf fig leaf excuse me he's got his oak leaf attached to it was he has to remind everybody that he's a major. <laughs> who doesn't know who he is at this point 
<laughs> right? Like how many people are, are on that in that unit? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like everybody knows who you are, Frank. It's fine. Yeah. You know, he's got to constantly remind everybody I'm a major. He went out of his way to take the oak leaf off of his uniform and peg it, uh, peg it to his, to his yep. neat wool cap. Uh, I just love that uh, detail. That he Frank all over right there. Frank all over. Um, so then we get to uh, uh, Sydney describing radar and we see radar is flying a kite uh, with the, some of the local Korean children. And he says, this boy keeps this place, this state of chaos running smoothly. And um, this is where the scene that we talked about with about O'Donnell comes back. And uh, I, first of all, I love the lighting of this. I love that it's clearly the end of a very long day because it's probably six, seven, eight o'clock at night. And the, you know, they're just finishing up their work. And we see that one of the duties, of course, Potter has to perform is write a, uh, not a death certificate, but a letter uh, to the family of anyone who uh, was a member of MASH and has died, which is probably not something that Potter has to do a lot. Not that many members of the actual unit die, but he does have to do it. And he's done it before, he says, of all the lousy duties I've had to perform. Uh, this is the worst. And of course, Radar wrote the letter for him. And then we hear Potter read the letter out loud. And we see that uh, Radar, not that it's surprising, we, we know how great Radar is already. We're five seasons in. But we get a view. First of all, we learn about that Radar was friends with O'Donnell. But they were genuine friends. And that he's upset that his friend has died. And we see that Radar is a pretty good writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the letter is about as well-crafted a letter as that kind of thing could be and potter reacts accordingly and it is just um again beautifully acted and beautifully staged by by alan older yeah i i love that that whole sequence i i i like how sweet the letter is like it's sweet and it's very innocent it's very clearly written by radar um or someone like radar right very clearly not written by um colonel potter uh but I, I love in that in that sequence how affected Colonel Potter is. Yeah. And like when you think about that, like how many of these letters has he had to sign? Right? Yeah. Um he could have just signed it and not read it, but he didn't. He chose to read it. Um, so he knew what he was signing his name to. But but like how many wars has he been in? He was in this, he was in the second world war. He was in the first world war as well, yep, wasn't yep, he? Yep. Um, so, you know, he's probably not been a commander that whole time, but for a no. good chunk of it, he must've been. And, you know, cause of his age and all. Um, so, you know, like how many times has he had to do this and he's still affected by it and he still takes the time to let himself be affected by it, which I mm-hmm. thought was, was a very, very, very nice humanizing touch. Not that Colonel Potter needs humanizing exactly, but but you know, just that's the type of thing in in, a, in the the hands of a lesser writer and a lesser actor that they just would have skipped. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's an absolutely marvelous scene. Um, so then uh, Sydney then basically gets to the end of his letter and says, "The one person I can't figure out, even with all you've taught me, Sigmund." is BJ Honeycutt. And we see BJ uh, pulling somebody out of the wrecked ambulance. And in the moment, just in between of, of helping people, he takes a bite of his apple. So like he takes a moment to sort of like, uh, you know, refresh himself in the middle of all this. Uh, we see him laughing at a, a prank that gets pulled with the whole uh, 
like spring loaded snake in the, mm-hmm. in the, uh, the yeah. sugar jar, um, which sends Hawkeye into hysterics. And, you know, again, uh, I, I said, you know, I'm going to be repeating myself all 11 seasons of the show. And I should stop saying that I repeat myself because I'm repeating myself by doing that. But <laughs> I think it is like so, Inception. yeah, yeah. I am incepting myself <laughs> all over the place here, but I think it is so generous of Alan Alda as a writer to let BJ be the character that Sidney Friedman can't figure out. Not Hawkeye. Not Hawkeye. It's BJ. Uh, that, yeah. that's, again, that shows an enormous creative spirit and uh, generous spirit to say, no, no, no. The one guy that Sidney Friedman cannot figure out, even as he said, even with all you've taught me, Sigmund, is BJ. That makes BJ a more interesting character that even Sidney Friedman can't quite get a handle on him now. It could be because he spent more time with Hawkeye to this point than he has with BJ. But still, I could see a lot of more insecure actors. And, if, you know, as, as I think it was David Mamet said, uh, if you didn't want to be an actor, you shouldn't have had that bad childhood. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, actors are, from what I understand, a pretty insecure lot. That's why you get into acting. And for, for someone who was the driving, one of the driving creative forces of the series, Alan Alda, to hand that over to the new character is, uh, I'd say, extraordinary. Yeah, I, I, I think that Alan Alda is not necessarily he, he fully aware of who Hawkeye is, but he's not precious about it, right? Like, he mm-hmm. doesn't need Hawkeye to be everything. Yeah. Um, he knows what he is, and he, you know. I also like that the psychiatrist can't figure out the person who has lots of healthy coping mechanisms, <laughs> right? Like the psychiatrist is like he's looking for the dysfunction, and BJ doesn't necessarily have any. Like he's a he's a pretty solidly put together person. He's like he he lives pretty comfortably in the moral high ground, and and he you know he's not. Um, he, you know, he's not trying to, he's not, I mean, he drinks, right? Obviously they drink, but he's not like trying to, you know, uh, use alcohol to hide from anything. He isn't, he's not lecherous. He's, you know, um, he, he is faithful to his wife. Uh, you know, he, he's overall a pretty healthy dude. And mm-hmm. Sydney's like, I don't get him, man. <laughs> I, yeah. uh, so like when I heard that, I thought that that was a joke, right? Like my immediate thought was that's funny. The psychiatrist is, you know, doesn't, doesn't get the guy who's got the healthiest coping mechanisms in the entire place. I, yeah. Uh, I, that's why I always aspired to be BJ, you know, is yeah. like, he just feels like he handles everything really well. He doesn't get that upset you know uh and i said that's why i always love this this character so much and then of course you see one of his coping mechanisms is he is the practical joker uh Mm -hmm. now he's we see that he is filling frank's foxhole with water which seems like an incredible waste of resources i gotta say uh (laughs) you know they're probably not they don't have that much it's not like they have plumbing here at the 477th outside of the water tanks going into the tent so that seems like a uh, a real waste of water, but okay. You know, things are, things are get a little loose sometimes. Um, Maybe it's river water. Yeah, there you go. Right. Well, there we go. Even, that would be even more of a joke on Frank as he, as he piles into it by yelling air raid and he falls into it. And you know, <laughs> Larry Linville, I feel so, I feel kind of beautiful because he just gets dumped on so bad in this episode. He's just a complete clown. Uh, I mean, he does get that one scene with Sydney, which is nice that he's so jealous of his wife and stuff like that. Yeah. But, 
Oh, I, really, I really like that character moment for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he does get to be very silly in this episode in a kind of very, you know, highbrow, deeply felt show. He gets to do a lot of very silly stuff and get an egg dumped on him and falls in the, I hope he got that in one take, by the way, when he falls into the, uh, the foxhole. Um, oh, yes. So uh, then finally, just before Sydney leaves, he views one more thing at the 477th, which at the end, at the, the first day of spring, they're unveiling a, uh, a tree, which they are hoping will grow. Uh, into something uh, over the course of the season. And of course, yes, it's technically spring uh, at the 477, but it's Korea and they're freezing and they pull the thing and it's basically just some twigs in a plant, in a planter. <laughs> and they cover it back up and I love that Raider goes, okay, that's it. And then they, that's it. <laughs> that's it. And they head off and then we see that, yes, yeah, Sidney Friedman is finally getting ready to leave and he says, you know, he thanks them for uh you know help letting him stick around and he says i'm gonna get back to work and he takes off and then as i mentioned the synopsis he hears the rattling and we see that they have attached a bunch of gas cans to his jeep and he pauses for a moment and then takes off with them still rattling behind because of course he's uh you know he's completely okay with the joke and mm-hmm. uh i mean it's just there's a button scene which again was always cut in syndication where he's kind of writing the letter again we're kind of going back in time where he sort of says one more thing, you know, they're, they're these, they're these uh, marvelous people, Sydney, but uh, you know, underneath, underneath. And we see that uh, Colonel Potter is performing surgery with his like feet in, I guess like Epsom salts or something like that. Yeah. Or whatever yeah that like is. warm water, Epsom salts, warm or water. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's just, I mean, it, it's just a completely fantastic episode just from beginning to end. It's really, I keep saying this is one of my fight, faith, I, five favorite shows. And I think I've said that more than five times uh, at this point. So I don't know if that's really an accurate list, but I, th- this would have to be at the very least top 10. It's just brilliant from beginning to end. I, yeah, I, I said at the beginning, I think it's one of the best episodes of television, like full yeah. stop, let alone, I mean, any of the best episodes of mash are going to be amongst the best episodes of television. Yep. Um, but, but this one in particular, and I, you know, I was reading it, it won a bunch of awards from, like this sort of the the awards that like creative people give their peers, right? Like well, Alan Alda won, like won a won an Emmy for best directing for this episode. Yeah, and I think a screenwriters guild award maybe or something. Screen actors guild. I'm not sure. One of them. Um, yeah, it, it 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 won some some acclaim, and rightly so. I mean, it <laughs> it's just really really good. Yeah, it's uh, it, it it manages to give a guest character the you know kind of the main thrust of the storyline yet gives all the cast something really good and of course the only character who doesn't get a kind of uh, a sydney shout out is colonel potter but colonel of course colonel potter gets that great moment with about o'donnell so mm-hmm. i mean all yeah. the characters get something really good to do really juicy to do and on top of it you've got the storyline with hathaway you know you've got yep. that too i mean it's amazing what they can accomplish in 24 minutes yeah you know it's interesting those scenes I, I i made a note when i was when i was watching there are sequences in the episode that sydney doesn't can't know about right he's not present for them yes like you know and and where they read the letter st- about or Donald. right where things still happen and and that's interesting to me as well because those are those are still being shown to us, but Sydney doesn't necessarily know about them 
you know, it's really cool that they, like you say, they, they, I think they centered the episode on a guest character, but they focused the episode on the regular cast, which was, which I think was uh, really, really cool. It it was, it was very much like all the letter episodes, which are my favorite episodes. Yep. Um, they are all very much like here is this person, what they're about, and that's that's a nice. I would have thought, you know, when I was watching it, I'm like, well, why the hell wasn't this the season opener? But because it would be a great place to jump on, right? Like uh, yeah. You could watch the opening episode and be like, okay, I, I'm I'm caught up. Let's go yeah. episode two. Um, but I also think, like, you know, of course, these shows weren't written to be binged, right? But even still, you know, I, I don't, maybe it's nice to have that kind of break, you know, in the middle of the first half of the season where you're just kind of like, okay, um, this is, this, this is an interesting little diversion from, from just your standard episode. Yeah. I said, it's just absolutely fantastic. And it, you know, at the same time, like turning your episode over to, uh, Alan Arbus, like that's a ringer, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, yeah, at the yeah. same time, it's yeah. like, well, I think we're going to be riff, okay. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I think we'll be fine. Uh, so yeah, it's just a, absolutely a complete winner from from beginning to end. So, uh, do you have a favorite line or joke from the show? I have two. Um, I uh, my I think my favorite line is Sydney says it uh, at the end when they're asking him to sort of sum up his visit, he said, it's like spring at mash. If you can't find it and you can't feel it, you just go ahead and make it. (laughs) Um, I love that. I love that line. Uh, It did sort of, it it did sort of jump out at me because no less than, than, than twice did they refer to being at the 4077 as being at mash. And I was like, have I heard that turn of phrase before? I've always ever heard, only ever heard them say like at the swamp or at the 4077th or, you know, at the mash unit. Like I've never heard them say at mash. It sounded hmm. weird. It's kind of, it, it like it, to my ear, it sounded like, you know, um, you know, Lucille Bluth giving you $10 to go see a star war. I'm like, wait, that's, <laughs> that's not right. Um, <laughs> but, one of the great lines in all of television oh fantastic yeah she was an amazing actor um but that that uh that line i think is great because it's it's also something you can sort of like take with you it's it's advice it's not just a great line but um but but my other favorite line is uh father give me your cheese from the windowsill <laughs> such an incredible non sequitur spoken in arabic by Klinger. like it you know that whole scene where he's just speaking Arabic most of the time it's gibberish. And I'm not entirely convinced that what he was saying in Arabic is what we saw in the, um, in the subtitles. But when he says, father, give me your cheese from the windowsill. I literally (laughs) howled. I'm like, that's so ridiculous. Who wants windowsill cheese? (laughs) I know mash would only, I think do one other episode where they actually had subtitles. Uh, when nurse Kelly says something to Winchester, in Japanese and it's it's a joke she she pulls a joke on him and of course he doesn't understand it. so I think it's the match only ever did subtitles when it's a joke uh, ah, because every fine. other time when you hear Koreans talk they didn't subtitle it 
so they always just did it that, that those two times and it's just meant for a, a laugh. Um, my, my favorite joke is again, uh, well, you know what? I'll do it with the line and then I'll say, well, I love it so much aside that it's funny when Sydney tells that wonderful story about not wonderful, but that wonderfully acted story about the dear, sweet, funny kid. And mm-hmm. then he says, you know, I, I started getting up late. I wasn't doing my work. And Frank pops up like a dick and he's like, you know, well, 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 looks like the doctor can't cure himself, huh? Mm-hmm. And Hawkeye goes, oh, God, I thought that lump under his blanket was dirty laundry. To which BJ responds, it is. It is, <laughs> yeah. Like, the, that is the butter boom. You know, like the yep. rhythm of that is perfect. And once again, Alan Alda giving BJ the funny line. Yeah. He could have switched it. He could have done it the other way around, but he gives BJ the line. And it was the way BJ just, again, the shruggy, it is. <laughs> just makes yep. What a, what a come up for that show, right? BJ Honeycutt. Like, <sighs> what an amazing, like, really, you know, I think that BJ and Colonel Potter and, and, uh, Charles Emerson Winchester III are huge improvements over the people they came in, you know, to replace. I was not a big Trapper fan. I think I, I've said that in the past. He he was not, I didn't, didn't relate to him at all. But um, everyone, please address your hate mail to C Drizzle uh, over at Twitter. <laughs> yeah, please do. I never checked Twitter, so that's exactly <laughs> where you should go. Um, Perfect. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, once presidents started tweeting, I just turned it off. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was not a huge fan, and uh, I just think that uh, that BJ Honeycutt is a fully realized character, and he's so interesting, and he's such a good contrast to everyone else on the show. Yeah. What a win for them! Completely, completely. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely fan fantastic the from beginning to end the show just an, an absolute classic and one of the ones that you know th- the kind of thing that when i started doing mash cast and i you know five six years ago at this point and i realized you know the undertaking of what i was doing you know like oh good lord i'm gonna have to produce at least 251 episodes of this podcast this is it's episodes like this that is like yeah that's why i want to do it is when we talk about right. shows like this because it's so good um so yeah it's just an absolute um complete winner so well, Corey, you know, thank you again. You know, I'll always have you on the show every season that we do. So thank you once again for, for coming back to MASHCAST. Thanks. I love it. It's one of my favorite shows. I love having an opportunity to talk to you about it. And as long as too many people don't hate on me for not liking Trapper John or um, think I'm self-aggrandizing by referring to myself as Sydney, um, then I'll keep coming back. That was a that was an epic level humble brag. I have to say, it really, really was. But, uh, <laughs> I really meant more in the in the sense that I'm on once a season. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Okay. I would also compare myself to Q if we if we wanted to. Oh, go we're all powerful, all the, yeah, okay. all powerful, all right. omniscient. Yeah, omniscient can control yeah. all reality. Okay, yeah. all right. I see where this yeah. is going. All right. So, uh, okay, everybody, if you want to find back episodes of our show, of course, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. We're always talking MASH over on Twitter at MASH477Cast. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, like these fine folks did. Daniel Ulrich, Nicholas Prom, Russell Burbage, Dan Peel, Britt Tram, Mike Thomas, Michael Porter, Joe Perino, Billy Shulman, big salute to you guys for supporting MASHCast. I very much appreciate it. So that is going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you later. But until then, that is all.
Dear Mr. and Mrs. O'Donnell, it is with real deep sadness that I must tell you of the death of your son. You can be very, very proud of Jerry. He never took a human life, and he died while he was trying to save the lives of five other fellows. He was rushing them to the EVAC, which is short for Evacuation Hospital in Seoul, when his ambulance overturned. He was a real good boy, Mr. and Mrs. O'Donnell, and I know he loved you both very much. He spoke of you often to my company clerk, Corporal Walter O'Reilly. We were proud of him at MASH, and we'll miss Jerry very, very much. Thank you, Rita. Don't change a word. Thank you, sir.